Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is Devin McConnell. Devin is the Director of Sports Performance at UMass Lowell, where Devin is directly responsible for all aspects of performance enhancement for the ice hockey team, including speed, strength, power, nutrition, and recovery. Prior to his time at UMass Lowell, Devin was a sports performance coach at Stanford University, where he oversaw the development of the men's and women's volleyball programs, as well as the women's basketball team. On this episode, Devin and I discussed many topics, including Devin's background and his influences. Devin describes how Lowell have become one of the most competitive teams in the Eastern Conference. What are the good and not so good things that Devin currently sees within the physical preparation profession and what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he's seen? Devin shares with us his training philosophy. Devin lays out his training system at Lowell. Devin discusses how tactical periodization shapes his programming. Devin gives us an in-depth insight into his athletic profiling system. Devin and I discuss jump profiling and the reactive strength index and how RSI interpretation differs from on-ice athletes versus field, court, and track athletes. This is due to the unique ground reaction forces experienced in ice skating. From this, Devin speaks about how this information shapes the explosive jumping and plyometric methods he uses within his programs for his ice hockey players. Devin shares the monitoring system he utilizes with his athletes. Devin shares with us the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career in life. 
David and I discuss if non-contact injuries can really be prevented or just reduced. Devin shares his top resources and advice to all the listeners. And finally, if Devin could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an outstanding episode with Devin, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Devin McConnell, we are live, sir. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast. Devin, just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine won't be too many people, just fill us in on your background. Yeah, thank you very much. It's um, The pleasure is all mine. Uh, my background, so I've been um, the head of hockey performance here at UMass Lowell, which is just outside the Boston area in uh, in the U.S. for, uh, this is year seven. Um, prior to working here at UMass Lowell, I worked for a little more than three years at Stanford University in California. Um, prior to that, uh, I've sort of got the start of my career as an intern and, and, and sort of my first uh, you know, job as a, as a strength coach working at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning in the Boston area. Everybody knows Mike. Um, so I kind of started there. Uh, I, I went to uh, uh, college in the Boston area as well, so that's how I got kind of connected with Mike. I was a college hockey player um, and kind of went down the path of, of strength and conditioning and, and started there. And, and now here I am at, at UMass Lowell seven years later. Nice and brief. I like that. There's a little more to that background, though, is there not? So you, where you used to play to uh, Pittsburgh, was it? Yeah, Fitchburg State. So it's a small, uh, a small school. Again, not too far from from Boston, Massachusetts. So went there to play college hockey. Uh, I guess if if we if I give you the whole sort of rundown how I got to where I am and, and got interested. Um, growing up, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, on the West Coast, and I was I always sh- interested. I, actually, in, I, I didn't know that. Did you know Seattle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a West Coast kid. Um, so was always interested in in training. Uh, from the standpoint of trying to be a better hockey player. Um, didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, was fortunate enough in high school to um, have a, a fantastic uh, PE teacher slash strength and conditioning coach um, that I you know worked with for uh, basically for four years in, in high school. And um, at the time was outstanding training, although as a kid, like I had no idea. I just, I just did what he said. Um, but I really, that kind of probably was the spark that got me really interested sort of in the field, um, even though I didn't maybe know it at the time. Um, going through then, after after high school, I played junior hockey. I played, ended up playing four years of junior hockey, lived all over the country, the U.S. and Canada. Um, and my last year of, of eligibility before college uh, was playing for a team in St. Louis and was beat up, was hurt, was in physical therapy basically all year, just trying to patch myself together through the end of the year. And when the season ended um, – I, I had about a month left where I had to stay out there, and I was basically rehabbed. And the the PT that I was working with said, "Well, why don't you just stay here and, and train with us? Train with me." Kind of had a sports performance business on the side, and started doing that and really enjoyed it. So the combination of sort of physical therapy and really, although it obviously wasn't great having to do PT, was really interested in the process. And then the training piece of it after that, I decided um, when I went to school that uh, I was interested in physical therapy. So I originally went to the college that I was at to play hockey, happened to have an exercise science program, and my goal was to become a physical therapist. But it was through that process of, uh, you know, essentially doing internships and, and apprenticeships and having the opportunity to work for Mike Boyle that I realized what I had always been interested in was strength and conditioning. I just didn't know that that was a job at the time. Um, so once I realized that that was a, 
a legitimate career and something I could do. Um, it was kind of full steam ahead. And, and, um, yeah, like I said, after I, I spent a couple summers working for Mike, um, was fortunate enough to get the job out at Stanford and, and that's where the, uh, the career kind of started. Great stuff. So Devin, a uh, question I'd like to ask everyone, as I said to you before we, we went on air here is, um, about your influences. So in terms of your, uh, biggest influences, who, who have been the biggest influences on you both personally and also professionally? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the easy answer to that, um, coming from where I came from is obviously is Mike Boyle, um, who continues to be a, a, a mentor to me and, and a really big influence, um, personally and professionally. Um, you know, that's where I, Learning from Mike and working for Mike at MBSC is where I sort of got my got my start. Obviously, as a coach and and um, his methodology and and thought process and and sort of philosophy uh, of training um, and really about you know kind of philosophy of of uh, you know as Mike talks about being a good person and and caring about your athletes and that being those being the most important things um, have been super influential to me. So certainly Mike Boyle, a uh, big influence. Um, you know, I worked for a guy named Brandon Marcello at Stanford. Um, he was a, the director of sports performance there and another big influence, really, really bright mind in the field. Um, very diverse, uh, sort of background. Um, doctor of sports nutrition is one of the founders of, uh, you know, the original athletes performance. Now Exos, um, overtook the, the Stanford program and, and really did some very interesting things there and, and brought in some, some folks that we worked with that were just outstanding. Um, so those have been some big influences it, going all the way back again to the sort of the story of my career. Um, Chris Mattingly was my, my strength coach in, uh, in high school. And, you know, he's not a, a, a known commodity and known name, but he's again, just one of those guys that's sort of been in the trenches for, you know, 25 years or whatever. And, um, has had a big influence on me, uh, obviously sort of setting the, the spark for me, um, in my career. So those, those people have been really influential and, um, you know, along the way, there's been a lot of people, you know, uh, Daniel Martinez is a, a, mm. a friend and colleague that does tremendous work and a lot of his, um, his work on, on force play data and, and jumping mechanics and things like that have been, um, really important in sort of the, the path that our program here at Lowell has taken as far as a, a monitoring perspective. Um, so he's another person that's been very influential. So there's a lot of people along the way, um, that have had a, a big impact. You know, I certainly, I'm a believer that you, you, you try to stand on the, the shoulders of giants and just try to take another step forward from there. And, and that's, that's kind of what's gotten me to where I am. Do you have a set of four sticks? We do not. No. Um, we're, we're an interesting program. We're, um, you know, we're sort of a, a mid major type school type university, um, from the standpoint of, of the size of our athletic department. Um, our hockey program is our, our primary sport here at Lowell, um, and we compete in Hockey East, which for the North American folks that are listening, you know, we play Boston University, Boston College, Providence College, um, up until last year, Notre Dame University um, are all in our conference, but we're a, we're a smaller school, and, and with that comes some some constraints and some, you know, uh, obstacles from a, a budget standpoint. So we get around uh, not having access to force plates, force decks specifically with Daniel, um, by utilizing contact mats and mm -hmm. I think doing some interesting things with those from a, again, sort of a jump profile and, and a monitoring perspective um, that I think we do a really good job of sort of 
coming as close as we can, um, you know, to the, the type of data that we're looking for uh, or that's influential that you can obviously really get with, with force plates, but we just don't have access to. Is it just, ju- just jump? Is it just jump mats that you're using? Correct. Yep, just jump is the the brand yeah. that we use. The the newer ones they come out with a with an RSI now. Remember the old ones was just the four jumps. The new ones have an RSI now, they. Yeah, it's interesting. They um, I don't know if they come standard now that way, but you can purchase a a computer chip to basically exchange into the little computer. They call it a plyo chip. Hmm. Which it gives you access to um, contact time and height of from a, like a drop jump, so you're able to do um, RSI type or, or get RSI information from that. But yeah, they didn't come standard that way. You had to purchase that secondary. So we have all of our we have six of them uh, outfitted in our room, one for each platform, and um, they're all outfitted that way, so we can we can get that data. Great stuff, and we'll uh, definitely as I said to you before. We'll talk more about RSI and, and how you're utilizing that in terms of um, monitoring your players and looking at their central nervous system on a, on a daily basis in terms of readiness. But just, I suppose, to give a little more context there, you got into it and you did this on the Historic Performance Podcast with James Darley. I thought it was good for the listeners in terms of setting context of your sentence. So you were just saying they're Lowell, they're in the Eastern Conference. Maybe just give a little more context around like how... I suppose like it's going to sound like it's kind of big in the open look, but I suppose how good Lowell are in terms of their competitiveness, given the teams that they have to compete at against on a yearly basis, and because the Eastern Conference is one of the most competitive in the states in terms of, I think you said on the Historic Performance podcast, like out of the last ten years, someone from the Eastern Conference has either been in the NCAA final or has gone to the Frozen Four. So maybe just give a little more context on the competitiveness of, of the of the of the hockey conference you're in. Yeah, so um, Hockey East is one of the major um, college hockey ho- conferences in the country. Um, been very successful historically. Um, you know, some of the the biggest programs historically in college hockey, Boston University, Boston College, are obviously in our conference. Um, it, it's something in over the yeah, like over the last ten years or so, some something along the lines of at least one Hockey East team has been in the Frozen Four every year or something close to that. Um, you know, so again, historically, the conference has been really good. In in my tenure here at Lowell, um, not just mine, I, our head coach was hired seven years ago and brought in our staff. So our staff's tenure, um, we've been very fortunate to um, enjoy quite a bit of success over this run. Um, in so in, this is year seven. So in six years, we've gone to the hockey's championship game five times. We've won it three times. We've won the regular season twice. We've gone to a Frozen Four. Um, we've gotten, we've turned something around a number about 25 players have turned professional after playing mm. here. Um, six, I believe have played in the national hockey league. Four of those six have been undrafted. So I think that's where, um, you know, the talk with James really kind of went and, and, you know, our, from our perspective here at Lowell, we're a very development minded program. We don't typically get, um, the really sort of blue chip high end prospect, like our highest draft pick player we've, we've had here in our tenure, I believe was a fifth, fifth round pick. And just to give context, like Boston University that we compete against last year, they had 11, 11 draft picks and I think six of them were first rounders. So we have maybe three or four drafted kids 
The highest we've had is a fifth or sixth rounder. Mm. Um, but we've been able to develop players over the course of their career and take them from being typically sort of a, uh, and, you know, certainly an undrafted, maybe an unheralded late bloomer type of kid and four years down the road, um, have them progress and develop into, into a pretty good hockey player. So that's been a big piece of our success as a, as a program is having this development mindset. And that's where obviously my sort of piece of the puzzle really comes in. Um, because I'm able to, to work with guys for typically for four years and, and do a, uh, you know, hopefully a pretty good job at helping those guys sort of build themselves up and build our program up and, and come along. Great stuff. So before we get into a little more of the specifics around your system there and your setup in UMass Lowell, uh, just a question again that I'd like to ask all the guests that come on. In terms of the good and not so good things you see within the physical preparation and sports science professions, what would you say are the good things you're currently seeing? And what would you say then at the other end of that question are the not so good things? And with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? Yeah, I mean, I think both the good and the bad um, to me has a lot to do with social media. Um, you know, on, on the, the bad side of things, we're all familiar with sort of the the keyboard warrior type guy that probably doesn't have a, a ton of uh, practical experience or sort of in the trenches experience, but um, maybe portrays himself as having that uh, or certainly has a, is able to kind of build a following um, based on their writing and not necessarily their, their coaching. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big challenge, especially for younger coaches to be able to um, figure out how to filter that and, and know, you know, what's, what's BS and what's not and, and who to listen to and, and, uh, who to steer clear of. I think that's really challenging, um, when you're, you're looking at the social media landscape because, uh, again, to the untrained eye, everybody kind of can end up looking the same. Um, on the flip side of that, I think social media has been profoundly beneficial to our profession in that, you know, it's, it's allowed, um, coaches, practitioners from all corners of the world, all backgrounds, all, levels of, you know, uh, you know, different, different jobs and things like that to be able to come together, communicate, share information, share ideas, um, network and, and, and really, um, move things in our, in our profession, in our field along at a, a really rapid pace. So I think it's social media becomes a double-edged sword. I basis, um, on the flip side of that, the ugly side of the social media is that you never necessarily know um, or it's harder to know, I guess, you know, the background and, and where people are really coming from. Yeah, definitely. You just, you cut out a tiny bit there for a second, but I got you, but just in case that happens again, I'll let you know. I might need to knock off a bit or something. Okay. Yeah, but you're good. You're good there. Yeah. So yeah, I fully double-edged sword, definitely social media without question. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, it can't, and the other thing too, the problem with the written word is it's, it's hard to fully express how your I suppose the old saying is it's not what you say it can be how you say it so things can, can no become, think, think, things can become very misconstrued uh, through the written word online like whereas if you heard someone articulate that in a one to one interaction in person that you know you you, you could walk away with a very different sort of perception of what they were trying to communicate especially even you know and especially with you know Twitter being obviously the the character constraints of Twitter can be very hard to to have any kind of detail behind, uh, you know, a conversation that's going on. Um, I'm pretty active on social media and I, I, I'd make a point to try to 
share as much video as possible when I'm discussing things or bringing things up just to, to, to give context. You know, if I'm going to try to make a point or an argument or, or have a discussion with somebody, um, you know, I, I think it's helpful to be able to, to see what I'm actually doing, you know, um, but again, that's even that can be can be uh, taken out of context pretty easily. So it's like you said, it's a double-edged sword. So Devin, the next thing I want to talk about then is your system that you have in place at Lowell. And I suppose this is as good a time as any to say to you what I said to you offline. And I'm pretty sure I wrote this to you, but and I've said this in numerous places, numerous other people, but. Out of all the programs that I've visited so far in my career, which is going on 12 years now next year, uh, your program is still the best program I ever witnessed in person. Um, that was in the summer 2015. So uh, obviously, uh, if I was wearing a hat right now, I'd tip and say, what's up to you, sir? Uh, but uh, well, what, I, what I witnessed in, in uh, that day that I went to visit you back in 2015 was just incredible. Your, your program was just, or your system, I should say, was just it was just like a really well-oiled machine and just everything from the culture to the to the actual execution of uh, all of the components to the actual discipline and setup and the camaraderie of the players. It just had ingredients of just an outstanding program. Well, I, I, that, that means a tremendous amount to me, but two things. One, you probably just caught us on a really good day. And uh, two, I think that... Um, I appreciate that, and, and certainly that means a lot to me. That's much bigger than me. it's it's uh, the professionalism that our our entire organization, our staff, um, has created, and the culture they've created. It's it's and most importantly, it's it's the character, the the kids that we uh, bring in, and and really attribute to them and their their dedication and their maturity um, to be able to uh, to to do what 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 they do, and for you to be able to see. Um, what we kind of do on a daily basis uh, is really it's it's a function of of uh, the culture that we've been able to build here, and it's it's much larger than just my area. But um, it's nice to know that that my window um, has you know that you saw through my window and yeah. and, and saw that because that's what we strive for. Yeah, the coach was says I went up to the shop window, <laughs> looked in, and went hmm, I like I like what's going on there. I'm gonna go in. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So what I'm going to ask now is if, if, if I was to ask you the question, what is your training philosophy? So basically the why, and then after that we can get into your training system, the how. Um, so if I was to pose the first question that, like what is your overall training philosophy? Yeah, so um, I consider my approach um, a, a movement-based approach. So everything that we're going to do in training ultimately um, needs to lead towards better movement on the ice. Uh, and if it doesn't do that, then we really need to sit down and ask ourselves, why are we doing it? So I'm, I'm not a fan of what I call or what I consider work for work's sake. You know, everything that we're going to do in our program, and we really stress this. And again, it's larger than just in training. It's, it's in our entire hockey program, but everything we do has a purpose. Um, and it's, it's creating that understanding and that trust so that our players know when I ask them, to move their foot here or to position themselves this way or to do some ridiculous looking breathing exercise or whatever that they trust and they understand that there's a purpose behind this. And ultimately the purpose is to help them be a better hockey player and reach their, their goals as a player. Cause that's at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Nobody's here to train. They're here to be hockey players. Um, within that sort of overarching philosophy, we really have two primary objectives. Number one, first and foremost is to reduce the incidence of injury. 
so going back to sort of the the point I made earlier that our, our program is really dependent on development, you know, and that's a, a big point of emphasis for us. If our players can't practice every day and they can't compete in the games, they're not going to get much better. Um, so they're not going to progress as an athlete and our team is not going to have a very good chance for success. So if somebody's really strong in the weight room, but every time they get on the ice, they pull a hip flexor, it does them no, no good. It does us no good. So every decision we make in training has to pass through this lens of reducing the incidence of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have to weigh that sort of risk reward. So, so all the programming decisions we make, um, have to pass muster from that standpoint. Um, the second piece then is, is obviously improving performance. Um, and this is probably where we'll, we can go down more in the, the, you know, the system side and the sports science side, but it's yeah, yeah. understanding what, what improving performance is for each individual athlete is really important. So we want to figure out sort of where the athlete is when they walk in the door through an assessment and a profiling perspective. And then we need to figure out from sort of a historical standard of our players that have gone on and been our best athletes and, and played at the next level, what did they look like? And we try to develop sort of a, a roadmap working backwards from where we want the athlete to get to in four years and where they are right now and start to sort of chip away at the, the weak links in the chain and, and try to, again, start that sort of development process um, from day one. Okay, so now let's get into the system. There's a lot of things I want to get into here, but I, like, so, I mean, we can talk here about off season versus preseason versus in season. Then we can also talk about the weekly setup within each one of those sort of periods of time. Uh, also, we want to uh, like to discuss how are you, you know, communicating with the other backroom management teams. So obviously, the head coach. Um, and then there's a skating coach, and then obviously there's a medical staff there involved as well. And you know how how you guys communicate on a day to day basis, and how does that change and shift roles um, given the time of the year? So basically, I mean, I'm just going to ask you, what is the overall system you have in place at Lowell, and what what would that look like over the course of the season, I suppose? And we'll start with that, and then what I will get into then is uh, take us through after that the process of bringing a freshman in and then the sort of returning athletes every year in terms of the, the testing you do at the, at the start of every year to get a profile on each player. But first off, let's just get into your system and, and you can just go in as much uh, detail as you want. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I guess I'll start sort of on the macro level, you know, from, from a yearly, uh, you know, annual plan kind of perspective. Um, obviously our, our off season is our, um, our strength, um, maximal strength sort of time frame. Um, we're fortunate that we have our athletes uh, on campus in the summer for at least six weeks. So we have a really good training block moving um, through the, the second half of the summer um, into the start of the school year. And just for context, um, so uh, school year usually starts about September 1st. Our first game is generally the, the start of October. So we have our off-season training leads right into our, our month-long preseason leads right into our, our in-season, which lasts all the way through April. So we go from sort of our general maximal strength um, uh, type of setup um, in the off-season, uh, or at least the second half of the off-season, and we transition more into um, a, a sort of power-slash-energy um, system kind of work capacity focus in the preseason just to get guys uh, sort of up to – um, up to speed from a, a game speed standpoint. Um, we transition then back into more of a, um, 
a strength component for the first half of the year up through basically the Christmas break, mm. uh, at which point the second half of the year, we sort of slowly start to taper down uh, volume, uh, excuse me, uh, intensities and, and sort of ramp up velocities um, and kind of, if you want to call it peaking from a, a power speed standpoint, moving into the playoffs. Um, after the season, we go through a, a short reconditioning phase where, um, you know, essentially we're trying to undo some of the damage from the season, uh, uh, you know, and, and get guys back um, healthy and, and functioning properly and moving well. Uh, and then we start the process back up again in the start of the summer and, and get back into, you know, pretty uh, maximal strength development. So strength underpins, obviously, the entire year um, is the biggest component, but there's a lot of breakdown from that kind of um, as we go. So I don't know where you want to go kind of from there, but uh, that's how we kind of structure the whole year. Yeah, just uh, one quite well, I've, I've a lot of things to ask. But, so just the, this reconditioning phase, what is the time period between the end of that and when the when the guys come back then for the start of the offseason? Like how much actual official time do they get off altogether? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit dependent on how the season, season goes, goes and yeah. how how long we go, right? But it's we typically uh, typically the guys will have ten days to two weeks just off, um, and we'll usually we've been fortunate enough to play pretty late in the season every year, so um, we'll we'll usually get two to three weeks of training um, started back up before then they are done with school uh, for the year. We then let them go home if they want to. A lot of guys will end up staying here for most of the summer, but players can go home for um, between six and eight weeks, depending on what the, the summer schedule looks like before they're back here. So the first half of the summer, you know, basically a month and a half to two months, is um, players on their own uh, wherever they live, but they do go home, obviously, with a, a program. So it's um, it, it's all built together. It's under the assumption that they're you know, essentially um, going to move from one block to the next and, and get back to campus as if they, you know, have followed the program perfectly. Um, more often than not, uh, our players are, are pretty good about that. So that helps us really lead into that second half of the season, uh, off season where we can really make some physical development progress. But, um, but we try to continue that all year again from a development perspective, a, a long term development. We really see, um, that, you know, we need continuous progress over four years, not just six weeks at a time in the off season. Mm. Okay, so you've given us a, a kind of a, a macro and sort of meso, if you want to use that term, look at your system and your programming in terms of you gave us the year there and then you broke it down into from like it was August to December, it was more of a sort of a strength emphasis underpin the program and then after that it was more into uh, velocity-based measures and, and more of a speed-power sort of type emphasis. Um in terms of the the micro cycles so of the weekly cycle, Devin, I know you give a pretty detailed breakdown of that with James on the Historic Performance Podcast. Maybe just if you can go through that for the listeners on on this podcast too. So I think it was Sunday you basically had off, and and then you kind of gave the rest of the weekly breakdown. So from Sunday you kind of broke it down until your next game. I think your games are on Fridays and Saturdays, but I'll let you go into the details there. Yeah. So you know, one I think key piece to what I just talked about and then moving forward is, you know, we're very much sort of a, a vertical integration program. So while we may be stressing specific qualities at specific times, we're, you know, like Alvar Meal says, we're, we're touching on a little yeah. bit of everything all the time. You keep a thread, um, of, you so keep that, a thread of everything in your program all the time. 
but you're just no emphasi- you're just you're just emphasizing qualities at certain times of the year. Exactly, exactly. Um, but then we sort when we kind of break things all the way down to the weekly level, um, we really try to look at um, player development and training stress holistically. Meaning, we're we really try to integrate what happens on the ice and off the ice together. Because as we know, you know, to the human organism, stress is stress. You know, the the body doesn't know, the brain doesn't know that the the athlete is is playing hockey or is, you know, in the weight room. Stress is being applied, and the the sort of uh, laws around uh, stress and adaptation still apply. So um, when we structure our our training week, we we really try to coordinate on and off ice stressors as much as we can so that we're, you know, essentially we're, we're not trying to ride two horses at the same time. Um, we, we try to follow basically a, a high-low approach, mm-hmm. and so if we're working backwards from game day and you're correct we play uh, almost entirely friday saturday night back-to-back games so obviously friday saturday night are going to be very high load very high in- intensity um days uh if we're working backwards our day before the game thursday uh we want to have very very low volume we actually want to have relatively high um intensity and i can detail a little bit more of that when we talk sort of specifically about heart rate but we want to have almost our highest intensity day um, on the ice uh, uh, from a, a training load perspective on Thursday, but very low volume. Wednesday ends up being our, our biggest sort of volume day, our biggest work day. So we're going to be in the weight room prior to practice, uh, and then we're going to skate, and that's usually going to be our longer, more intense, um, uh, higher training load on ice day. Tuesday is going to be either um, – Again, a very short, more of a, a tactical, um, low intensity day or just off, depending on, you know, later in the season, a lot of times we'll end up taking that as an off day. Mm. Uh, Monday is another work day. So we get that kind of high low approach, um, where we're back in the weight room, uh, first thing before practice. And then, uh, we're on the ice and it's a little bit more, um, uh, skill development, technical, uh, development standpoint on the ice. Um, that's oftentimes where we'll have our, our, uh, our skating coach will work on, you know, the specifics of skating mechanics or we'll do, you know, break out into, um, you know, individual skill sessions and things like that on the ice. But again, the training load overall, the overall stress of the day is going to be somewhat higher. And then finally, Sunday is our off day. In the NCAA, you have to take one day off every seven days. So we play Friday, Saturday. Sunday ends up off. Um, but we do have uh, most of our athletes will come in and do some type of active recovery uh, that day, so it's not it's not a completely um, you know shutdown day, but they'll do uh, a light flush ride and a roll stretch or something like that, just from an active recovery standpoint. So that's kind of working backwards from game day. That's what our week looks like typically. So you, you I heard you speak about tactical periodization too on the podcast with James, and this kind of leads me into the question then of from a management standpoint, how do you guys sort of um, how do you guys work together in terms of that sort of week to week setup, you know, and then like in terms of like, I suppose things will ch- change a little bit maybe in terms of the week to set up depending on the opponents that you're going to pe- play. Um, and also how much of an impact does the style of play that the coach wants to do with the team have on what you do in terms of your end with the, with the physical preparation aspect? Yeah. Um, well, from a, the tactical periodization 
piece. Um, it's certainly not as, and I talked about this with James, it's not as in-depth as, you know, a true tactical periodization designed program in, you know, football and rugby where obviously those methodologies came from. But what we try to do is to structure our, our on-ice work in a physiologically um, appropriate sequence. So just like in, in the weight room, like, a, com- like a sort of a, a compatible, a compatibleness, if you want to say. Exactly. So in the weight room, we would follow a, a our training template would be speed or movement skill development, followed by you know unloaded power, plyometrics, medicine yeah, ball type yeah. work, followed by loaded power, you know jump squats or Olympic lifts, followed by strength, followed by ESD, and that's what our training day would typically look like. Well, on the ice, from a physiological perspective, we try to follow a similar sort of template. So. Um, in any given day, uh, if we're going to be doing technical um, skill development work, we want that early. If we're going to be doing tactical systems-based work, that's going to come secondary. And if we're going to have more, um, you know, battle and compete type of work, and more sort of energy system dependent work, that's going to come late. So that's the first layer of that sort of idea of, of tactical periodization that we've we've borrowed from. Um, the next piece of that is it kind of goes to the game planning piece and it's, it's much less for us about um, what other teams are going to do more. So what we're going to do. So we certainly train in a manner to develop our athletes, to be able to perform the way that our, the, the style that our coach wants to play, which is very up-tempo, aggressive, very fast. Um, we don't, we don't necessarily, we don't at all alter our off ice training, um, to to prepare for a specific game plan with another team. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't alter what we're doing in the weight room. Obviously, on the ice, from a tactical perspective, the team is going to make adjustments. The coaches will will alter systems um, based on who we're going to play from from some degree. But hockey being the way that it is, that it's a very high pace, very free flowing game. Um, there's not a I think a as much um, tactical adjustment. Yeah. Um, on the ice, as there are in many other sports, where you can really have kind of wholesale changes in the style of play. Uh, our turnaround from game to game doesn't allow that, and um, the structure that we end up um, trying to enforce on other teams sort of dictates that we're not going to make massive sweeping changes from week to week anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, probably my question was not very well stated there, but you kind of answered what I was trying to say anyway. So yeah, one part I was trying to ask was how you – how are you combining the stretches of both training? And you answer up by saying you're trying to have a, a, a compatibility between the on ice and off ice stressors. So that makes sense. I guess the other part of my question was, do, does the, the style of play that the coach wants to implement with the team, does that dictate what you do within your physical preparation program? You know, so, you know, like, because I know for myself with the Irish sports, you either have big physical strong teams or you can have very fast, skillful, teams that mightn't be physically strong but they're they can execute their sports skills very fast so they might need more emphasis on you know speed power maybe not as much maximal strength development versus the kind of a big stronger very physical demanding teams yeah so they play a different style of their sports specific game uh, it, like so would you sit down with the coach at at certain times of the year or obviously at the start of the season or whatever and he would he lay out saying this is sort of my philosophy in terms of our game by the way I want this team to play would you would you sit down and have that conversation and then would that further impact how you would physically prepare the players? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, we, we certainly will have those conversations. Um, you know, and at this point we've worked together long enough that you know, I, know, I know yeah. what he's, yeah. yeah, I know what he's looking for and things like that. But, um, you know, so I guess the answer is sort of twofold with our lower training age athletes. It probably doesn't change a whole lot of what they're going to do mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, from my perspective, my, my role is, is the general development. So yeah, yeah. when we get freshmen and sophomores, more often than not, it's pretty basic. They need to improve their strength. They need to prove their rate of force development. So they're going to kind of get plugged into the system and we're going to watch how they develop over time and make adjustments, but they're all going to start kind of at square one, um, and, and work from there. When we get to our higher training age guys, our, our juniors and our seniors, then we start to probably less so adjust things based on their, um, you know, their role on the team because it's that's not going to influence it as much, but more so that's where we start to do our profiling work and understand what are their weak links. So if we have somebody who um, is really big and strong, but but you know is does not have a great first step, like we might adjust some of what we're going to do um, from a, a speed power standpoint um, or from a plyometric standpoint, depending on our, our jump profile data to. Uh, sort of hone in on those areas that, that are going to allow that athlete to improve his, his general preparedness so that when he's on the ice, you know, the specific preparation um, can then, you know, enhance his game overall, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like Farkashansky says, the, uh, the, the uh, what was, what did he say? The, uh, oh, how did he word that thing again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think of it now. No, no, it'll come to me now. The meaning of the training process is to increase the biological output of the organism. I'm pretty sure. I get you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yep. ba- so basically, he just means get in shape. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, at have, the end of the day, it's. Uh... Yeah, you have to say in that cool, like broken which like the the meaning of the training process is to get the organ <laughs> is to increase the organism's biological output. There you go. Yeah, the like accent's that. key for sure. So, Devin, uh, it's really great stuff so far. So, what I want to get into now a little bit is. What sort of athlete profiling do you do on a year-to-year basis, and does that profiling change from freshman to sophomore to junior to senior, or is it just like a, you kind of have your your set uh, athletic profile that you like to look at? So what I mean by profiling is, you know, are you looking at things of like, is do you look at any speed indices? Uh, I know you do some jump profiling. Do you do any? Um, uh, power and strength tests if you do what do they look like and do you do any energy system components tests so like do, basically do you have a profile that's testing all these different physical capacities and biomoral qualities to see where guys are at the year and then if you do uh, what, what what do you use and then from that information how does that how does that affect the program for each each player you have yeah um, so yeah we do a, a tremendous amount I guess um, from sort of a a profiling standpoint, um, you know, a data collection standpoint, everything from um, our strength work, our power development work, um, uh, our, like you mentioned, our, our jump velocity, we time our, our um, acceleration, our 10 yard speed on and off the ice. Um, obviously, our, our energy system work and, and we use our heart rate data to, to monitor that stuff over time. So I think there's a lot of layers to it. Um, the, the way we kind of look at, um, like our strength work is um, from a are you strong enough kind of standpoint um, and a progression standpoint is looking at um, strength relative to body weight for 
uh, things like um, rear foot elevated split squat, which is our, our primary lower body strength lift, bench press um, from a sort of a strength speed um, component, hang cleans um, from a speed strength uh, side of things, hang snatch. Um, we'll look at, we'll also look at um, um, uh, power output and velocity output from uh, rear foot elevated split squats at a specific percentage of one RM and, and we'll track that over time to see if that is in fact improving, not just whether their, their sort of absolute strength is improving, but if their rate of force development at a sub max speed is, is improving. Um, then our, our jump data, um, jump profiling, I guess, from the contact mats and, and the various jumps that we do, um, that sort of feeds into one from a, a long-term development standpoint. Are we, are we developing these qualities? And two, that helps to drive and dictate some of what we'll do from our sort of our plyometric um, program perspective. So the plyos that the athletes will do will be somewhat dependent based on their um, where they fall in that in that profile that that matrix. Um, and then for you know from an energy system component, yeah, we we certainly test. Um, we have a conditioning test at the end of the summer, but probably much more important than that is looking um, sort of uh, you know the game to game data um, from a heart rate recovery standpoint um, and also heart rate variability over time so th- there's a lot of layers there's a lot of things that we look at um, there's no you know single data point or single number that tells us or tells us uh, tells me you know this player is good or bad or strong or weak or ready or under recovered but we try to look at it sort of holistically and and again we're trying to pull out um, you know, the, the weak links and see where we need to, uh, adjust somebody's program, especially once they've sort of gone through the system for a little bit and gotten to a certain point that we deem is sort of, you know, quote unquote strong enough, um, or fast enough or, or what have you. And then, then we start to tweak things a little bit more in depth and a little bit more on the individual level. So just going off the, these, uh, parameters that you're looking at in your profile, what, what are, what are good sort of results, scores, indicators within each one of those physical capacity domains? Like, what, what do you consider to be good in terms of, right, I know that this individual has enough of this physical capacity bucket filled. Where's the next kind of deficiency I'm looking for? So, again, you know, you can get that guy who strong as strong as a horse, but maybe his rate of force development isn't great. Um, so, so what sort of, like, basically, so what I'm saying to you, like, is how fast is fast, how, how powerful is powerful, how strong is strong, how conditioned is conditioned yeah. in your mind? Yeah, so um, the the strength one is probably the most black and white and easiest one for me to define, at least how we've defined it. Um, you know, 1.3 times your body weight for um, uh, hand clean and for bench press both mm. are sort of our threshold of like, okay, we're going to, you know, from, from a bench standpoint and upper body strength, we're going to develop, uh, you know, we're going to keep pushing for strength until we reach that and then we'll start to look at um, you know, velocity, um, based training from that perspective. Okay. Uh, hand cleans the same thing. Like we're going to try to, uh, essentially improve your, your, you know, sort of, um, your one RM numbers up until we get to kind of that one and a quarter, 1.3, uh, place. And then we're going to start to look at, you know, not really trying to improve or, or increase load, but now we're, again, we're going to look at, move that load faster. Rear foot elevated split squats, um, is an interesting one because, we, we had sort of set that at, at, at and decided that um, 
2.0 times your body weight um, was was a sort of the the threshold that made a lot of sense looking back. But we started to train that that movement um, in a different way. So we're we now use a safety squat bar um, and sort of the the Hatfield squat idea, where the guys can have their hand on the rack using a safety squat bar to train the, the rear foot elevated split squat. And uh, that's been basically over the last nine months to a year. And we got to a point this summer where everybody blew that two times your body weight out of the, out of the, out of the park. And it was uh, not something I kind of saw coming. Um, but our entire, um, all of our veterans uh, did a legitimate one RM at at least 400 pounds and a couple of guys were over 500, oh, holy uh, fuck. which was, yeah, it was absolutely insane. And, and we'd always done that lift with dumbbells and vests and we got to a point where we couldn't really load it anymore. And that's why we switched over. And for a, a host of reasons, uh, I think that that has been an absolute game changer for us from a strength standpoint. So we're long story short, we're at a point where I don't know if two times your body weight is the right threshold anymore. I'm not sure I want to go beyond that. I'm also not sure that I, I think people could go a lot beyond that, which is kind of crazy. Uh, to, 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 just in terms of that rear leg, is it on a bench or is it on one of those stands? Yeah, we use the, the RFE stand. Um, so it's a, it's on a stand and their knee has to touch down to an air X pad that's on the ground. So, mm-hmm. you know, two inches off the floor. So it's, it's relatively standardized for everybody, but Very good. it's, um, it's, that's been an interesting one. So from a, 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 a profiling standpoint, those are our sort of, that's where we're trying to get to, um, from, for those numbers. Um, uh, we do a one RM chin up too, which we want to see exceed bench press, um, including body weight. So that's another, those are our, our sort of four. Well, why, why, why the chin up? Why do you feel that's important? Just, just ask. Just um, from a, from a sort of a balance standpoint, anterior, posterior kind of strength standpoint, um, I think that that's important. You know, we're obviously a collision sport, so um, we want to make sure that we have uh, actually probably balance is not the right. We we try to have a higher volume and higher strength level of our 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 pulling work to our our um, anterior yeah, pressing work um, in general. Hockey, from hockey just lives in flexion, so yeah, exactly. So and it's you know it's a crazy sport for those who aren't um, you know real uh, aware of it. I mean, we skate guys skate it. 40 kilometers an hour and, and run into each other. They're 200 pounds. They run into the boards, which don't move, you know, at, at 30, 40 kilometers an hour. So it's, <sighs> it's a very, very obviously collision based sport. So just from a, a ability to withstand impact standpoint, um, those are important things for us. Momentum at from, its, momentum at its finest, mass size, velocity, no, boom. Yeah, no, no question. Um, our, our, our conditioning test is, uh, six 200 yard shuttles at 20 yards with two minutes, uh, rest in between. It's a very lactic, um, you know, conditioning test we're looking at. Obviously, we're looking at, at, at absolute times. We're looking at, um, decrement, percent decrement over, over the course of the six reps. Mm-hmm. And then we're also looking at, um, heart rate recovery okay. in between. And, I was gonna and ask I, that. again, yeah, uh, what we see in games, that we're basically is our, our threshold or our, our mark that we're looking for. Uh, athletes will get into the 90%, 95% of max heart rate range pretty much every time they're on the ice in a game. And they're, they're on the ice for between 30 seconds and a minute. Uh, athletes who are sort of well conditioned for ice hockey will recover down to, 
uh, into the 60% range um, within about uh, 60 to 90 seconds. So in, in that two minute break, we want to see that um, that sort of drop in in heart rate. We want to see guys can get up into the 90% range, and then we want to see them get down, you know, under at least under 70%. Um, will show us that we're we're in pretty good. How, how many how many how many beats in. how many beats would that be within the within? Um, per, uh, 40 to 60, depending on the guy, Fridge. somewhere in that ballpark. And uh, so then, so you've given us some of the parameters there, strength numbers, and you give us some power numbers around the hand clean. You gave us some strength numbers around the bench and the uh, rear foot elevated split squats, and also the energy system stuff with uh, with the tests on the ice. Uh, what about this jump profile and Devon? Um, like in your mind, are you looking at non counter, counter, and then the reactive strength index? Um, and if so, are you using arms? Are you not using arms? And then, uh, what do you consider is a good score for your counter or for your counter movement jumps? And then also, just just a little caveat to that, because ice hockey, in terms of ground contacts, because there isn't really a ground contact; it's an ice contact. But their contacts are so different to running in terms that they actually need to spend a bit of time on the ice to create a bit of force. How does that sort of does that sort of come into your thinking around plyos and how guys apply force to ground and? You know, I've heard some coaches say they do more bounding stuff where they, you know, because the bound allows you to, to stay, spend a bit longer on the ground versus like more shorter sort of jumps and hops and the vertical emphasis. Um, have you ever thought about any of that stuff? But I suppose you can tackle that uh, uh, that question wherever you want to start. Yeah, um, the the short answer is absolutely. The the impulse time in the skating stride is is much longer than it is in land based sprinting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of that, we have uh, altered our general plyometric program to emphasize longer contact plyometrics much more so over the last few years than than previously. We'll still do short contact time stuff as we progress through the course of an off season, and certain athletes will do more short contact time if that's their weak link. But in general, from a overall philosophical standpoint, yeah, we have def- we definitely emphasize more long contact type stuff. We we also do not plyometric based but we we do more uh, loaded jumping whether it be yeah, with the safety yeah. squat bar or or like trap bar jumps um, now than we did probably you know five years ago mm-hmm. we still we still Olympic lift from the, the hang position but in a four day program we'll do two days where we're doing loaded jumps and two days where we're doing Olympic lift stuff um, from a from so from the the jumping perspective the the profiling perspective we do a number of jumps we do counter movement jump with a full, you know, full arm swing just as a global indicator of, of power output and, and development. We do a non counter movement jump without an arm swing. So we hold, you know, the bottom position for a two count with hands on hips. We do a single leg, uh, jump with hands on hips, um, for both left and right. And then we do a drop jump where we get, uh, obviously height and, co- excuse me, contact time. And uh, from that we get we get RSI we get reactive strength index. Three so we look at those things. Three attempts and all. Uh, yep, exactly three attempts. So we'll look at those things all sort of in collaboration to find, again, sort of relative to each other. Where is the weak link? And it's not necessarily a a, a black and white or a cut and dry. There's, it's a little more, um, at least at this point, a little more art to the science as far as figuring out or deciding what a guy needs to work on more so. Um, but generally speaking. If an athlete has a uh, a good uh, 
counter movement jump, which for us, um, you know, 30 inches is, is, uh, a 30 inch jump is a very good jump. Um, and so if they've kind of hit that threshold, um, and their con, but their contact times in the drop jump are quite low, which ends up having, bringing their, uh, their RSI number down, then they're probably going to spend more time doing some short contact or, or, you know, drop jump, depth jump, depth jump type stuff in our plyo so, program. So, and that's why I asked that part of the question. So if you are seeing that, we, we know that they spend longer on the ground in terms of the impulse. Do you think that really matters then in terms of the reactive strength index? Now, I understand you can use RSI as a readiness tool for sensor nervous system, but in terms of looking at their elastic reactive strength, yep. because, because that doesn't seem to play as much as component on on, in ice hockey, do you think it's something that really needs to be stressed then with a guy? As as as, I, I, as as compared to like a sprinter who obviously needs to develop elastic reactive capabilities. Yeah, it's all it's all on a spectrum, right? Like certainly not as much as those uh, yeah. as a sprinter would. Yeah, I do still think that's an important biomotor quality. Mm. Um, you know, even if it's not necessarily overly involved in um, in, in acceleration and, and and max velocity sprinting on the ice. I think those qualities are still important uh, from a change of direction standpoint. Um, so I do think it's important to touch on those. Um, again, that idea, that vertical integration, we're going to touch on a little bit of everything all the yeah. time. So so that stuff's still going to be in there because it's still an important athletic quality. It just might not be something that we're emphasizing as much as you know that longer impulse, longer contact time stuff, which will have more of a direct correlation um, to, uh, you know, Line, at least linear speed mm. uh, acceleration on the ice. Well, the other um, and the, so other re- the other reason, sorry to come across, the other reason I'm fucking terrible cutting in is just that if, if, if I also feel if I don't say it, I'll just forget it. The the other reason I asked too is because I know with sort of more land based land based athletes, you know, with RSI, they're all talking about you know being less than 200, 250 milliseconds. I suppose my question to you then is because ice hockey don't have to have such really don't want to suppose or don't need this like really rapid ground contact because again they're on ground they're on ice is your threshold then for their ground contact a little bit higher than you'd usually you'd usually apply to maybe a, a ground base athlete like so if you what, what are good rsi scores based in terms of contact and also this is just purely a, a question for me to you have you have you seen a court like like do you see any ratio of the the height jumped to the counter movement or non counter movement. So like that, that's one question I've always had and I've been asked is like, should there be some sort of ratio of someone's so let's say someone is like underneath that two hundred and fifty or two hundred millisecond threshold just for arbitrary sake, how much then of their how high should they be jumping then? Like what is a good height to jump with that ground contact threshold in comparison maybe to their counter movement or non counter? I'm I'm not sure that I've got the answer for that, but I will tell you that um, the ratio between non-counter movement and counter movement jumping mm. is really important for hockey. And, yeah. and this is, this comes from, uh, Ryan Van Asten, who's the strength coach for the Calgary Flames nice. in the National Hockey League. He, he's done a lot of data with his force plate stuff and he's started to see basically a correlation between his best, their best skaters, their best technical skaters have, um, a very tight relationship between their, their non-counter movement and counter movement. And I don't remember exactly if it was 90% or, or exactly what the numbers were, but essentially their, be- their better skaters uh, had a non-counter movement jump that was very close in height to their counter movement jump, meaning most of the, the force production from either jump, well, obviously from the non-counter movement, but also from the counter movement, 
was, you know, longer impulse muscular contraction yeah, versus, it's more muscular versus the elastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are, that's something we're starting to look at more in depth, that ratio. Um, you know, our, our skater, our players aren't as obviously, um, often technically as, as good a skater as those guys that, that he has. So I don't know if the numbers are the same, but it is, it is pretty telling that our, our players who have a, a closer relationship, even if it's not, even if the, the absolute jump height is not, um, the highest on the team, the, the players who have a closer relationship with those two numbers tend to be our better skaters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. With relation to the question about the the RSI numbers and the, the contact time, I would say that um, in general, yeah, we we tend to have longer contact times um, at peak height with our drop jumps than you see a lot of times in the literature. That you know, 200 milliseconds or whatever it is, we're probably more in the the three to four, mm-hmm. uh, point three to point four. Um, but we we have seen that trend down. Uh, to shorter contact times over time. So, um, again, that quality may not be the, the primary quality that's necessary, but I think it's, Still it's a supportive playing. quality and yeah. we, we do see those things improving over time. Great stuff. Uh, Dev, are you still okay for like 10, 15 more minutes? You okay for that? Yeah, man, as long as you want to go. Oh, yeah. that's great, great. Because I have a few more questions here. Um, so this, this is, well, this is great stuff. Nerds! <laughs> so, uh, Fergusanski will be proud. Again, the the uh, what you call it? Uh, I love Fergusanski. I actually that that thing I said the thing you said on it came from Barbell Shrug. The, it was a Barbell Shrug podcast, and your man they were talking like they all Russian stuff, and he said the Russians just wrote things like so complicated. Like for instance, I was at this seminar one time with Fergusanski, and he just goes the the meaning of the training process is to increase the uh, biological output of the organism and then some guy in the audience put up his hand and said Professor Bruchanti do you just mean get in shape and he goes yes just <laughs> 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 so it was hilarious um, so listen that, that's fantastic so what I want to just ask about now Devin is your your monitoring of your athletes um, so I know you have both objective and subjective um, means here. So with the subjective, you have wellness questionnaires, I think, that you use on a daily basis. Then you've got some RPE stuff that the guys will do afterwards. And then objectively, I know you use HRV. Um, so maybe get into that too. Oh, and you also use the RSI too with this with, with this color system, the, the blue, the green, amber, red. So just get into that first. And then off the back of that question, how do you keep that fresh with the players? I mean, that was one great thing Carl Valle said to me one time. He's like, yeah, all this stuff is great, but like when you got someone who's there for four years and they're used to, you know, they you know, VBT on the iPad right beside the squat rack is not novelty anymore. It's just like, it's like, like, how do you keep it to guys that are like listen, like the wellness thing every day and the RPE, and you know, you're gonna get those players like today was a seven, it's a seven, it's a seven. Everything you ask me, it's a seven. Uh, you know, some guys who maybe aren't as bought in, well, not bought in, but probably is a problem in your in your in your setup from what I saw when I was there, but. But I suppose, how do you keep that fresh or the importance of it with your guys, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, the, the, no question, that is a challenge. Um, we ask a lot of them every day, and uh, it can it can get monotonous and, and can be a grind. I think the way that I try to keep people engaged, I, I'm a really big p- proponent of education. So I want our athletes to know why. Why are we doing this? Why am I, why am I asking you to do this questionnaire every single day? Why am I asking you to weigh in and weigh out every single day? And how does this actually influence things? And being able to tie that back to, again, what are their goals? 
what are they trying to do? What are they trying to achieve? And it's a trust process. It, it takes some time, but you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's the, the quote, uh, Mike Boyle's, you know, quote that I really try to live by. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, if I've built a relationship with them and they, they truly believe that I care about them, not just as athletes, but also as people, then when I tell them that, listen, I know that this is a pain in the ass, but it's really important. This is really going to help us help you. This is really going to influence what we do in practice to help you achieve your goal, to help the team achieve our goal. Mm. Um, I think that that goes a long way, uh, you know, one to buy in, but also to, um, kind of putting up with the, the monotonous, um, issue, the monotony problem that, that certainly can come along. And there's other things that, that we'll try to do, you know, from, we'll try to interject some competitiveness and, and, um, some gameplay and things like that with our monitoring stuff. Um, so it's not just, you know, trudgingly, okay, I got to go over there and jump, but we're really trying to have guys compete with each other and have a little bit of fun with it. So that's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not a perfect scenario or situation. I don't think that exists, but that's how we try to go about it. Um, as far as, as our monitoring program, I, I try to break it up into, uh, two pieces. So I call it the front end monitoring and back end monitoring. So front end is, um, you know, basically that the idea is we're trying to have a better understanding of where our athletes are before they walk in the door or before we get started every day so that we can make any, um, you know, acute adjustments, um, that day, whether it be in the weight room or, or on the ice. So our athletes do a subjective questionnaire on their phone. They have a, an app, we use coach me plus. So they, they punch in their, their subjective scores in the morning before they come to the arena. Um, so we have that data before they've even walked in, just an idea of how they're feeling, how, you know, what their mood is, fatigue level. And, and my dashboard is basically set up, um, to, to rank or to, to color code everybody's score based on their, uh, 30 day rolling average and it colors them by standard deviations. So if a player just punches in a seven every single day, um, the day that he punches in a six, that might be very influential. Whereas if a player adjusts his score every day, one day he's a six, one day he's a four, one day he's an eight, whatever, then a smaller fluctuation may not register. So it's less about the number mm-hmm. and more about the trend. how unusual that exactly the trend is. So that's one thing we look at. Um, we also do, like you said, um, heart rate variability. So basically the system is the athletes do their subjective, subjective scores before they come in. When they walk in the, the weight room, we have uh, our iPad set up and some a couple of different scales. Guys come in, they weigh in every day, and they punch that into the iPad. And then they go lay down on the floor, and we do a, a heart rate variability test that's built into our, our heart rate uh, software. We use First Beat. So that's just our system. They know the deal. They walk in, they lay down, and they five minutes, we do a resting heart rate. So I have that data right up on my screen. I have the, the subjective scores. I get the HRV data right away. And we just see, is there, are there any big red flags? More often than not, it's all systems go, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But if, if I'm seeing some red flags, a guy's HRV has been low for a few days. He's unusually, he, you know, he's got a lot of red on his subjective scores, a lot of low scores for him. You know, the, the first thing I'm going to do is have a conversation with him. And that's the piece that always gets missed in the sports science conversation is at the end of the day, it's just information that can drive a conversation. So I'm going to go talk to that athlete and see how are you feeling? What's going on? What is, is school? You got tests going on, something going on with the girlfriend, whatever. Everything okay? Yeah, I'm good. Great. Let's get to work. Oh, I'm really grinding. Like 
I have a cold and, you know, some stuff at home. Hey, you know what? Let's alter what we're doing. So that's the first step. That's, that's the upfront or the, the front end monitoring piece. Um, I'll add into that on lift days. We do our drop jump RSI scores mm. and, so uh, um, that'd be Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday in season. Uh, basically what we do with that same thing as that sort of red light, green light, um, system, um, based on a 30, 30 day rolling average and their standard deviations. Uh, I punch in those scores right away and I put that there's, I can put a dashboard up on our TV. And so each player sees their, their, their face and it color codes based on their RSI scores. And if they essentially, if they are a, um, a green, actually it's blue or green, blue, yeah. they are above their standard deviation score, um, significantly from their last 30 days. And that's a, that's a green light to hit the gas pedal. So the system basically dictates, okay, you're going to add, uh, 10 to 20 pounds on your primary lifts, you know, your, your hand clean, your RFE, um, because your nervous system is telling us we, we have a green light to get better. If you come up with a yellow, you're basically in your average. Uh, we're just going to do what's what's pre-programmed, what's on your your training sheet. Um, and if you're red, basically you're a little sluggish today. Um, we're going to cut back volume. Intensity will stay the same, but we're going to cut volume. With the caveat that I'm going to talk to everybody that's in the red, and if they feel like no, like I feel good, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to give them usually the green light to go for it because their subjective feeling. And their desire to get better to me almost always will supersede what the data says because it's all about context. So that's the, that's the asterisk to the, um, the RSI data, but we will use that as a general indicator of, of CNS, um, readiness. And it's not perfect, but it's what we can do on the back end. Um, the back end monitoring is really mostly about looking at, um, trimp data and trimp per minute or what we call intensity density. So, um, not so much in the weight room, but more on the ice. So we look at on ice in practice and games. We look at, at workload data from Trimp. And then again, that, uh, that per is, minute trim is, 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 is Trimp really, is, is Trimp the name of the software or is it an acronym for something? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so Trimp is short for training impulse. Okay. Um, and it's, it's basically, uh, the, the, the basic formula is it's, it's heart rate times duration. Yeah, it's a little yeah, bit yeah. more complex, but that's really what you're getting. So the longer you go, or the harder you go, the or both, the higher that trimp level is. So it's a workload metric. Um, we look at so that gives us our sort of volume score for the day. But then we look at trimp per minute. So how intense was a session um, as an indicator of intensity? Uh, for example, if a if we have a ninety minute practice with a trimp of ninety, and a forty five minute practice with a trimp of ninety, that forty five minute practice was much more intense. So we look at that on the back end to essentially assess what actually went on. And we have some goals throughout the week, again, from that high-low model um, of stress application. On the ice, we want this day to be high, this day to be low, this day to be high. And we look at that data on the back end to say, okay, are we meeting those goals? Are we stressing our, our team on average appropriately that we know sort of historically leads to um, high readiness scores going into the weekend? And also, you know, long-term development. Um, we, we, we look at that and then we have our athletes do a, a session RPE afterwards and they weigh out. So we're looking at, you know, generally hydration status, um, which is another just educational tool with the guys. And then, um, 
uh, you know, the session RPE. We just want to make sure that that generally reflects what we're seeing from our, our physiological data is, you know, if today was a very high trim day and a very high trim per minute day, uh, but their a player is telling me that this was not a, not a hard day. Well, that may be worth looking into a little bit deeper. So it's almost a check and balance system. And then one thing that we've started to, to do just recently that's been really helpful, um, is using the, the intensity density, the trim per minute of a practice to, on, on each player's individual level to then, um, prescribe additional conditioning work. So, um, if, if we know a practice is supposed to be, for instance, our, our Thursdays, we typically want to have a very high intensity density day. We want to be over a 2.0. Um, so, you know, more than two trim per minute almost. If a specific athlete did not reach that, then they will have a little bit extra work to do in the weight room on the bike just to make sure that they hit that. They sort of top that off. Um, and we have that threshold throughout the week. And we do, we use the same dashboard. Um, you know, coded system that we use for the RSI, um, we're using for the trim per minute. So we'll just put that up on the TV screen after practice and players know, okay, um, if I was in the yellow, I need to do this program on the bike. If I was in the red, I have way more work to do. I need to do this program. And we just have that written out for them on the whiteboard. But that means that that allows us to individualize each athlete's workload uh, after the fact, if a player reached their, their workload threshold, their workload goal in practice, they don't have any more work to do. But if a, if an athlete did not, uh, then we need to, we need to fill that tank a little bit. So it's just a little bit, I think, more in-depth way to go about prescribing more or less energy system work or appropriate energy system work than what a lot of people or what we used to do, which is just kind of looking at, well, what was your, um, you know, how many minutes did you play this game? If you didn't, didn't play a lot of minutes and we need to do a little extra work. Well, this way we can, we can be a little bit more pinpoint with that data. That obviously still is a work in progress, isn't it? In terms of judging what certain guys thresholds are, you probably need to get a trend of, of that individual in, in terms of what their thresholds are in terms of needs for, in, in terms of their needs of how much water they need to make sure that they're getting just the required stimulus that, that fitness quality doesn't decay versus overtraining. Or, or, or under recovering or whatever you want to call that. Um, like, where, where have you come with that concept? It nearly sounds a bit like, uh, who's the guy that's, uh, who's the guy, um, is it Stu, is it Sue McCormick? No, not Sue McCormick. Who's the guy doing the research with the hamstrings? And he was saying that you need just, you need just enough stimulus to, like, pr- protect your hamstrings, but too much, to, you know, oh, Tim Gavin, yeah. Tim Gavin. Is that kind yeah, of the it, chronic stuff. yeah? Is that nearly really kind of what you're looking at with the condition that you know if oh, if, if they don't get enough of this work volume in, they they can they, they can start to detrain and detrain to a degree that it could probably be more susceptible to injuries because they have their fitness threshold and by fitness I'm using that as an all-encompassing term to yeah. inco- incorporate all the physical capacities that their fitness could, could have gone down so much that it actually leaves them more susceptible to underperformance potential injury. Whereas at the other end, you know, you don't want to go too too far because it will It'll obviously put them over or outside that central nervous system, or if you want to call it adaptation bucket. Um, is is that kind of where your process has been with that to make sure guys are getting an adequate stimulus so that they're kind of in that sort of episodes you want to call it? They're not in mommy or daddy parts, you're in baby parts, which is just perfect, not too hot, not too cold. 
Yeah, exactly. It's and, and you're right. It's absolutely a work in progress. We we do look at the sort of the acute chronic workload um, stuff, and that's a little bit where the idea came from. And and again, those numbers are um, they are they are relative to the individual yeah. and their individual standard deviation. So you're using uh, you know, Z scores, what you're saying, guys. Exactly. Exactly. So I I, I say a, a 2.0 on Thursday, for example, but. That's a, that's a team average. We, when we look at the individuals, there's obviously going to be some guys that are above yeah. that and some guys that are below that. Um, so it's, you know, the, the color code system that gives us our indicators, um, is based on their individual averages, um, over time. So, but it is, it's a, it's a work in progress as, as all of this is. There's, you're never really finished with it and, and, uh, you, you find things that work and, and then you get rid of the stuff that doesn't and, and you learn about new things and you try stuff and, you always try to take a step forward. You know, we, we ultimately have not reached as a program our, you know, our ultimate goal, which is to, you know, win a national championship and, and from my perspective, have, you know, zero man games lost. So until those two things have happened together, we haven't finalized anything, you know, so it's, it's, it's always about getting better. So just two other things there. Were you using Coach Me Plus two years ago? I think, I don't, I think, I thought you were using a different software when I was there. Were you? Uh, yeah, we may have just, you were using close to two years now, but it, it might have been something different at the time where we were first when for, we first started using an AMS. For question for the questionnaire, you were using something different, I think. Yeah, yeah, we we did use a different system. We switched over to to Coach Me Plus a couple years ago, and and um, it's, been, it's been they've been a big help. So yeah, they've they've been really good for us. Finally, if we move on from the modern day, is what if you are getting a guy in terms of HRV and. He's continue, now like the, people have this misconception, and you're well aware of this too. That you know, if you turn up red, you can't perform. So no, no, that's not. You could get someone on red, and they're like they're outstanding that day. Like so, if you turn up red, like it was a game day, they could still go out and like shoot the lights out. It's you don't want to see a trend of reds over and over again. That's when there's issues. But what if you are seeing a guy with a trend of red, and he's like, no, I feel great, coach. I feel great, and he actually seems to be okay. Is that has that come up at all? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I look at HRV. Um, I don't use it. I almost, I won't say never, but I rarely use it um, on sort of a day-to-day basis. I use it as a tool to look at the longer-term trend. Hmm. Um, so if a guy is red today, like you said, it, it doesn't have anything to do with his ability to perform. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I mean, if a guy is continually getting red as a trend, like you got right. like four or five or six in all. Absolutely, yeah. So if if that is the the scenario, um, again, that's first. That's going to spur a conversation, and if if they tell me, no, I feel fantastic and everything else is fantastic, then I'm probably, honestly, I'm not going to worry about it that, that much. Um, I'll, I'll, what, I'll, what I will do is look at that and see is his, is his actual score um, just, you know, it, it, does it color code in the red um, because that's how the system's set up? Or is, is, is he just sort of ride low? Because you're going to have some guys that, that ride high and some guys that ride low. So what is his mm-hmm. what's his individual change is going to be more important than than sort of um, you know globally if he's lower or higher. Now right. if if I do see that and I think that we do need to make some change, then yeah, I'm probably that's probably going to be an indicator that um, I'm going to cut back some volume. I might just have him do some light aerobic work on the bike. I may have him do um, something different from sort of a, a recovery standpoint. Um, uh, to, to see if we can we can alter that a little bit, um, but it's also important to, to understand and to remember that you know these are for me these are student athletes that have a whole heck of a lot of other things going on. So we can do everything perfectly in here, 
and maybe the the guy's a mechanical engineering student and his workload is just through the roof and it's his ability to cope with, learn to cope with and handle that that is really influencing things. And, and we can have conversations about that, but I can't change anything about when he has midterms. You know what I mean? So there's there's some of that too where sometimes the data tells you stuff and there's just nothing you can do about it or nothing you should do about it. And that, again, we circle back. That's the the art of coaching, which I think is is really, really important, is, is understanding that all of the sports science stuff that at least that I'm doing, um, it's providing context, it's providing information, but at the end of the day, we have to make informed decision, decisions with that data and not let that data drive drive what we're doing. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff, my man. All right, so my next question there, and we're going to wrap up here soon enough. Um, there was a specific question I had there on my mind. Was there? All right, Devin, just what, what will happen to there now is um, in terms of some of the oh, – you know, I'm always worried about using the word mistakes, but uh, in terms of the, the biggest mistakes you've made so far and the biggest lessons that you've learned from those mistakes so far, what would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned in your career today? Um, oof, that's a really good question. I think um, I've probably, again, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think my my background and my history, my professional history, I think has allowed me to um, get really good at the, the system that I employ um, because I, I've been fairly um, microscopic in my view. Uh, the other side of that, the flip side of that coin, is that um, in the past, uh, I, I probably haven't been good enough at seeing what other people do that, that do things differently than me and seeing what I can take from them that's outside of my box, if that makes sense. Um, so I probably, you know, I probably missed on, on things over the years uh, that other coaches have done that, that um, you know, were outside of my sort of um, my comfort zone. Mm. Um, whereas now I think I, hopefully I do a better job at, 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 at getting outside of my circle and, and seeing what others are doing and, and understanding the why behind what they're doing. If it, even if it doesn't fit for me in my program, getting a, a better sense of why it works for them and, 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 and that there are, you know, there's different ways to skin the cat and, and understanding that and learning from those, those other individuals, other coaches. Great stuff. I remember what I was going to say to you there. Just going off the back of what we were talking about there with HRV and, and maybe getting a continual trend of reds, I suppose another thing that will actually indicate to you where a player truly is, at is, is, is looking at all the other aspects that you're using to monitor that athlete. So, you know, you could get a guy saying, oh, I feel great, but like their RSI could be any different thing as well. And, uh, you know, so you, and even maybe have their have velocity on a bar is gone. So you, you, you can probably even, you know, tell or get a window into truly how the person is on a physiological level, not even just off HRV. Yeah, that, and that's why I think it's important to do a number of different things. Exactly. exactly. You know, HRV is looking at one system. Mm. The the RSI is, is looking at one system. Yeah. Like heart rate's looking at one system. So looking at these things collectively and holistically, it starts to paint a broader picture instead yeah. of relying on just one individual metric. Well, that metric is telling you one thing, but these other four things are telling you another. Um, and so it's looking at the big the big picture and not getting 
sucked into that, yeah. you know, that, that one day. I, I think that's what the guys from Megaway try and sell you on, is that it's not just HRV, they're looking at, you know, metabolic, cardiovascular, and neural as well as the right. autonomic nervous system. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So, obviously, with HRV, we're looking kind of at the ANS, the autonomic nervous system, with the RSI, more central nervous system. Yeah, and then with your sort of heart rate stuff, you're getting the window into that cardiovascular system. Yeah, so I think that's that's a key thing. Uh, and then in terms of uh, screening, um, so we spoke about like profiling and sort of performance indicators and indices when looking at physical capacities and biomotor qualities, etc. What about like uh, movement screening assessments? I know that you you integrate some PRI stuff into the program. Um, do you leave all the movement screening up to the sports medicine staff? Do you do an FMS? Do you do any PRI tests as well at the start of the season? And if you do do any of that stuff, does, that, does any of that stuff get revisited during the year? Uh, how, how does that kind of fit into your program? Yeah, we, we, um, we typically do the functional movement screen at, in preseason and, uh, and postseason. So we want to see where, you know, where our athletes are from a, a movement standpoint at the beginning. Um, our program over time tends to iron out deficiencies that, that are brought to light in that system. So there's not a whole lot of like corrective stuff that we do unless somebody's really out of whack. And in that case, then we're referring out. It's, you know, that's out my, my lane. Um, but you know, it's, we use it as a check and balance. So where are you when you come in? Uh, let's make sure that if you're good, you're staying there. So we check it at the end. And if you're poor, let's, let's make sure that you're improving over time. Um, if somebody's really bad, then we'll probably check them kind of at the midpoint. I used to do some PRI screening and some of their assessments. And, um, you know, in, in our population, what I saw over a number of years is almost everybody kind of panned out the same way. So mm. I don't do a lot of the PRI screening anymore, although I do use a few of the exercises um, from sort of a, a an activation uh, pre-training standpoint and and uh, sort of in, in training um postural sort of reset standpoint um, but I don't do a lot of a lot of uh, the screening and assessment based on on their stuff just because most of our athletes kind of all presented the same way for for a pretty long time um, so we kind of do more of a blanket approach with that great stuff last year and I'll let you go because uh, are you okay do you, do you need to go to the toilet or do you need to go anywhere are you okay no, I'm good, man. Yeah, I just want to know if you need to, because uh, that, that often happens with a conversation with me. People, when they start encroaching on like an hour and a half, people kind of like, I have to go to the jacks. I'm like, it's okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so just uh, re- recovery, regeneration, and um, Devin, this is what I want to talk to you about. But before you go into that, right, the last sort of training question, about two training questions that's right, one on injuries and recovery, regeneration. This The injury question is something that I've been thinking about an awful lot lately, and I've posed it to Lauren Lando, and I've posed it to Vern Gambetta, and we've had some really good conversations about it. And I may, and I, and I posted to Phil Wagner too from Spire Science. And so you'll be well aware of this too, because I mean, myself and yourself have been around very similar sort of groups of people and, and group think, if you like. Um, but you often hear people saying that, okay, contact injuries, there's not much we can do about that. But nobody, no one's at least should be ever be getting soft tissue injuries or, or non-contact injuries. That's, that just shouldn't be happening. And my sort of thought process around that is, I think that's completely incorrect. And the reason why I said it is, organized sport is completely abnormal to the evolution of humans. Like, it, we've never had to face sport the way that we face it now. So, like, like sport in terms of, like, evolution is completely abnormal to humans. So, therefore, like, injuries are therefore normal because it's such an abnormal process. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that 
we should not be trying to reduce the incidence of injuries. But what, what I really just can't stand to a degree is you get these coaches who slay other coaches or programs that they have no idea what's going on and saying, oh, look, they, they picked up a soft tissue injury. Soft tissue injuries are not going to should never, ever happen. I'm just like, sport is so abnormal. Like, like physical preparation, strength and conditioning, like, they're not even around, like, 50, 60, 70 years in the form that they are now. And organized sports are even around like a century and a half. And everyone's all like, oh, we shouldn't be getting any of these soft tissue injuries and that. And like, like in the grand scheme of evolution of humans, organized sport is like a fetus. It's, it's like, it's like, it, like, so like what I'm saying is it's so novel to our bodies to turn around and say that non-contact injuries shouldn't happen at all, I think is, is a very bad statement to be making. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to some degree, I, I agree with you from the standpoint of, I don't think it's fair to say it should never happen. I mean, you want it to never happen. Yeah, I think and, I'm the not, reality and, I'm not, is, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, and I, I think the reality is that, yeah, sometimes, sometimes shit goes south. Like, it, it happens. You can do everything right and something can happen. Um, I would, you know, I, I also agree that it's, um, you know, we as a profession need to be much better at not um, not condemning other people in our in our profession um, right at right at the outset. Like mm. you, you see somebody go down, and it's automatically everybody jumps on on whoever that strength coach is without having any context behind what goes on, without having any context behind what else that athlete does that we don't have an influence of. I will say that I I think it is fair to judge programs on a whole over the long term when it comes to sort of the the number and and frequency of of soft tissue injuries Um, because I I do think that that is an area that we can positively influence I I don't think we can ever certainly eliminate those things but I think that's that's the only thing I'm trying to get across is that you know these people saying oh this should never happen like that's just not yeah no uh, you you can't eliminate all of it um, but you can, I do absolutely believe that you can reduce yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that, I, I believe that wholeheartedly because we've had very, very low, you know, our, the stat in hockey is man games lost. We've had exceptionally low man games lost to soft tissue injury over time. We've had, you know, of six years, we've probably had three years with zero and the other three years with one or two man games lost. So we, we you know, We've been very fortunate, and some of that's good luck, but a lot of that is really good training, in my opinion, and good stress management because it's more than just in the weight room. Now, that's a collective. That's a, a cultural piece. That's a, you know, you need buy-in from the coach and the staff and the players, but all that feeds in um, to, to you know, the, the ability to keep athletes as healthy as possible. It doesn't ever guarantee anything, but I think that it is a metric that is really important when we're looking at, you know, I guess judging judging programs as a whole. If you're having programs that consistently year after year are losing numerous players to soft tissue injury, then I think there's an issue there. Is um, there, but if it's a, is if there it happens a, here and there, like there's nothing you can do about it. Is there a high incidence of soft tissue injuries in hockey though? Just given that like the ground reaction forces are so different to like a field game. It's di- different. So hamstring injuries, no. Um, what you do have in ice hockey is, is sort of what we call hip, hip core growing. Sports hernias are a major problem. Um, adductor hip flexor strains, um, are a major problem. Um, so, so those are the things that you look at from yeah, in, in ice hockey, at reducing those types of injuries, um, and, and keeping players healthy enough to, to play. Um, that, that's what you're looking at more so than things like hamstrings that are obviously a, a big issue in, in, 
land-based sports. Yeah, like, and again, it's just even something that Ver was saying is like, like I always was kind of saying, like, if you brought like a caveman back now, brought him to like an NFL game or something, he'd be like, what, the, what are he's doing, wasting all that energy, and how come these humans are so big and fast? Like, what are they doing? And just for, like you're, you're you're kind of like the training that some of these guys go through in terms of the the, the the morphological changes they make to their systems in terms of the muscle mass and then the forces then that 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 their body can express but the, it's like it's like the forces that they can express the, the 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 other structures in their body aren't resilient enough or aren't they, they haven't been put in place then to to withstand the forces that they're actually able to express on themselves so that's why i'm saying as well like that like as a human species like uh, like the like we and again organized sports is around such a sh- short period of time and organized training and even proper physical preparation is around so short like the the adaptation period to, to, to this is, has been like so minuscule and you know again so what I'm trying to say is like if you like build up a guy from a force potential standpoint like so basically you're putting a Ferrari engine into like a I don't know like some like fucking shitty little Fiat you know like and then you're asking these guys to go out, and then these forces are going through their joints. It's basically, they're just they're just not prepared for these demands. And again, the, and the reason is that sport again as a as a stimulus to the human species. Like I'm talking about, like you know, like international rugby, NFL, NBA, and like even like look at look at how like foreign these things are. Like look at NBA playing games at 9 p.m. at night under artificial lighting. Like what's that doing to the physiological systems of the human body as well? And it's just that when you get you get these guys rolling an ankle or tweaking something, and then just these like people going, oh, a non-contact injury should never happen. I'm just like, that is just like I don't know how someone can turn around and just say they should never happen. But uh, definitely, as I said, and, you, and as you alluded to, I would never say that that we should not stop trying to reduce. I, I guess one of the best things I heard, and I'm not too sure if it was who said it, but we really need to replace the word injury prevention with injury reduction. Like we can't prevent injuries; we need yeah. to just reduce them. You know. So uh, yeah, agreed. Agreed. I, I would say though. That's why I think that, at least for me, philosophically, like priority number one is trying to reduce injuries. Yeah, yeah. Priority number two is, is improving performance. Because you're right, if you if you increase all these performance parameters, but you don't improve the things that, that go into yeah. handling that, the resilience, then that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And at least for us, you know, I, I would take less horsepower in the engine and more games played. Now, yeah. ultimately, yeah. you want you want both. But for us, more important is games played. You know what I mean. So the, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean on that side of the equation more so than the other. All right. So uh, wrap, last question, um, last training question, and then all I'm gonna ask is your resources, your top advice, and then if you can invite five people, that are dead or alive, who would you bring away? And then we're 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 done. We're dusted. But with recovery, regeneration, Devin, what sort of strategies and protocols have you got in place there in terms of, say, nutrition, hydration, and then some of the actual. Yeah, sort of more from the, I suppose, physical preparation aspect of the recovery, regeneration, sports medicine, and the things. What What are you guys doing there? What What are you looking at? Well, so we we try to we do we do something every day. I'll say that. So I think from a really from any training stress standpoint, and certainly um, from a, a regen standpoint, I think consistency is the biggest key. What we try to do is 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 look at the primary type of stress incurred in that session and we try to prescribe the appropriate uh, regeneration tool. Um, so if it's a, a highly neurological taxing day, um, we, we may do some diaphragmatic breathing and some, uh, you know, uh, contrast tub to try to 
um, you know, mitigate or, 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 or drive some parasympathetic tone to help relax the system. If it's more of a metabolic day, we're going to do, um, you know, more of a, um, you know, maybe a, a light flush ride and a, a foam roll stretch. So we, we try to gear things a little bit towards what goes on that day. Um, nutritionally, you know, what we're able to do here, um, we have our athletes have access to, um, you know, post-workout chocolate milk. We have a smoothie bar set up with fruits and vegetables and, um, you know, some things like that to try to uh, improve, obviously, hydration, but also, um, you know, from a nutrient timing standpoint, uh, try to get fuel back into the body, again, based on a little bit based on a, a workload and, and, and primary type of stress. So that's how we kind of look at um, recovering regeneration. It, it falls on me, not our sports med team, really. So um, all that stuff is sort of prescribed uh, by me um, on a daily basis uh, for our guys. And then um, some of that, too, comes down to, uh, you know, a little bit of what athletes what athletes like or don't like as well. So, you know, what, where I might think that cold tub might be the right tool, if a player absolutely despises getting in the cold tub, then that's probably not the right tool for that athlete. Mm. So we might try to find an alternative for that. But that's sort of our system uh, that we have in place and, and how we kind of go about and think about uh, regenerating. Do you uh, ask the players about sleep in terms of, do they fill that in on their questionnaire? Do they, in their wellness questionnaire? Yep. That's a, that's one of the questionnaires. So uh, sleep quality and sleep duration are both um, on the questionnaire. And then those are, again, sort of educational touch points that we talk about all the time is uh, the importance of sleep and, and the, the influence positive and negative that, um, you know, sleep debt and things like that can have. And I was fortunate enough early in my career at, at Stanford to get to work with uh, the sleep center there and, and Sherry Ma, who's become uh, quite influential in the field. And so, um, you know, have a lot of sort of background information on, on sleep and how important that is. So we really try to, we stress that, we teach that with our athletes. We try to set schedules up as best we can um, to uh, allow for, you know, best best case scenario, whether we're on the road or our practice schedule at home or, or what have you. So we, we try to um, really, uh, uh, we, we advocate for uh, the importance of sleep all the time. Great stuff. So is, was she the researcher around the Stanford sleep study, was she? Yep, exactly. And, and did the, uh, you know, the, the study that had to do with the basketball team um, men's yeah. basketball is where yeah. the, the data came from, but th- they were also doing the data um, and, and the, the testing with the women's basketball team, and I, that's who I was in charge of when I was at Stanford. So um, I actually helped with some of the data collection that really? um, helped to, to influence some of that um, that research that ended up coming out that was that was has been pretty influential and, and um, pretty interesting. So if she gets any like big prizes, you'd be like, hey, don't forget me. Yeah. Throw throw a little something over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So wrapping up here, Devin, what, what would your uh, top resources be for all the listeners? And this resource can be anything in terms of books, uh, DVDs, online video courses, podcasts, uh, and it could be in any domain too. It can be to do with the physical preparation field, can be nutrition, can be functional medicine, can be spiritual, can be personal development. You can go anywhere you want with this. Can we go agriculture for all I care or child development or whatever? <laughs> Okay, that's uh, those are those are uh, depth, in depth questions. Um, uh, you know, sources that I utilize a lot um, from an educational standpoint, um, uh, strengthcoach.com is a, a resource that I 
utilize almost on a daily basis, really. Um, I think is a, an awesome platform to communicate, share information with other um, really intelligent folks, whether they be strength coaches or PTs or, or what have you. Um, I, I would have to say, like, I'm a partner in a website called HockeyStrengthAndConditioning.com. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's listening that's interested in hockey specific, um, I think we have a lot of great content uh, there. The the CVAPS um, stuff, the both the the seminar that Jay DeMeo puts on and, and his website that he's um, just started really uh, developing, I think has some absolutely unbelievable content and information there. So I think that's a great source, um, as well as uh, uh, Altus and those guys uh, out in the Phoenix area and their, and their website, um, Dan Pfaff and all of his stuff and his staff are fantastic. Uh, social media-wise, I think, again, I think is can be hugely influential. Um, I'm a big big reader. Um, I read a, uh, try to read a, a ton, read a book a week or so. Um, and so I'm always, um, posting information about the, the books that I read, um, and sharing that with other coaches and, and getting stuff from them. So I think just any of that stuff on social media to me is, uh, from an educational standpoint is, is really influential, uh, for me and, 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 um, has been really beneficial. So those are probably some of the things that I, that I lean on the most, from an educational standpoint. What uh, what book or books are you currently reading right now? I just finished two books, uh, Game Changer. I knew it. Connelly. I knew you. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I was actually even just going to say it to you, so how was Game Changer? Just say it to you like that because I knew you'd read it. Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I thought, um, I mean, I think Fergus is a really, really uh, bright guy, um, smart guy. I think it was, it was, um, I enjoyed it because I partly because I think it uh, reinforced a lot of my thoughts on sort of in this tactical periodiz- periodization realm and the integration of uh, strength and conditioning, sports science, and, and, and you know the tactical piece uh, sort of in a holistic manner, which I think is something that we we do here. We we've, we've sort of organically grown here, but on obviously a, a pretty small scale relative to you know something like what's happening. Um, at University of Michigan football, which obviously is a much mm. larger and, and uh, <laughs> much larger budget, certainly, than us. Um, so I thought that book was really good. Um, I also read a book just now called uh, The Rise of Superman. Oh, yes. Which, um, yes. you know, it's obviously top of mind. I literally just finished it yesterday. But I, I, it was fantastic. It's all about flow and action sports uh, athletes and how and why they get into flow, utilize flow, and why they're pushing collectively their sports uh, arguably further and faster ahead than, than pretty much any other sport, um, whether it be things like skydiving or wingsuit or snowboard or any of these action sports, and why they're sort of you know breaking records, so to speak, at just an incredible pace. I think that was a, a really enjoyable um, book, and, and, and I took a lot, of, a lot away from that. Who's the author of that book again? Uh, I I couldn't even tell you. Yeah, because no he, he came out with another book there recently. Somebody somebody mentioned on a podcast. Um, if if you had to pick your top three to five books, what would you say? Um, that's really t- tough. Uh, you got to give me that one ahead of time so I can look back. Um, I would say, um, Legacy number one. Mm. Probably. Most people are familiar James, with, uh, with James legacy. Yeah. yeah. I think just from a cultural standpoint, like that's, that's a book I go back to. No, um, dick, no, dick heads. 
No dickheads, exactly. Sweep the sheds. Yeah. Um, that's a, a hugely influential book. I would say um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by um, yeah, Sapolsky. Again, that's sort of from a philosophical understanding, understanding of stress and adaptation, I think has been really influential um, to my, to how we do things kind of overall. Um, and then, you know, I, I honestly, from at least from an influence on my career standpoint, I would have to, again, go back to um, some of Mike Boyle's books and writings just from the standpoint of um, helping me to develop a system and understand and build a philosophy uh, that I think obviously is underpins sort of everything I do on a daily basis. All right. Last two, give us your top advice now to all the listeners. So uh, a piece of some piece of life advice. What would your top advice be? Uh, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. <laughs> and in the sports world, in the sports world, win, lose or draw, chop wood and carry water. Um, you know, that, that quote, if you're not familiar, is just, I think it's a, a Buddhist saying, but it's just keep working keep, you know, be passionate about what you do. Uh, you know, if you're a coach or a practitioner, um, work every single day, enjoy what you do. Uh, if you don't enjoy it, get out. Cause it's, we don't have enough time on earth to, uh, to waste our time doing that. But, um, I think that's sort of a, an influential thing that's always sort of, I come back to in my mind is, uh, is show up and do the work. Um, and, and enjoy it and enjoy the process and, and, um, good things will happen if uh, if you can kind of follow that on a day to day basis. That's beautiful, man. I really like that. I really, really like that. The very last question now. So, Devin, I'm back in Boston, and I'm heading up to Lowell, and I'm saying, "Hey, Devin, I'm in town, and I want to bring you for dinner." And I have my magical powers with me. So, I'm gonna, I, for this dinner, it's gonna be me, you, and I'm gonna let you invite five people, and these five people can be dead or alive. So, I can bring them back to life if they're dead. It'll take some smell and salts, but we'll get it done. But if you could, if, if you could bring five people to this dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite and why? Uh, yeah. So, um, Gandhi. Uh, nice. uh, these these three together for the same reason, basically the same reason. Uh, Gandhi, Mandela, and JFK. And I just think uh, those folks, you know, their um, their worldview, their perspective on what's important uh, as human beings. Um, I think I, I would like to, I try to learn, I try to read from those, those folks and try to learn a lot of their, what they've talked about in their writings. Uh, and I think it would just be fascinating collectively to hear them speak and tell stories and learn from them. Um, just uh, again, from the standpoint of, of being a better person uh, more so than anything. Um, uh, number four, I'll say uh, uh, collectively, I'll, I'll put two together and say both of my uh, my grandparents on uh, cool. uh, my father's side. I was very close to, cool. and uh, they had long, wonderful lives, and you know nothing bad. But it would be uh, awesome to sit down with them again and, and share a dinner. Uh, and I'll add one more uh, that would be really um, neat for me would be my uh, my wife's father who passed away um, before we got married. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, meet him and get to know him a little bit, um, while we were, you know, uh, dating. Um, but he, he, he passed away, uh, far too early and, and I didn't get to know him, uh, quite as, uh, not nearly as much as I would have liked to. Um, and for the standpoint of my 
my kids getting to uh, know and enjoy their their grandfather. Um, it'd be really cool if I could spend a little bit of time with him. They're great answers, Devin. They're absolutely fantastic answers. So, Devin, listen, I, I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Um, it was great having you on. The conversation was very stimulating. It was fantastic, and I, I really appreciate your time. Um, and obviously, as I say to every guest, just stay online like while, while I wrap up. But before I do that, maybe just tell the listeners uh, where they can contact you if, if they want to contact you. If someone else wants to get you on their podcast or they have questions for you, where's the easiest place to, to get in contact? Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, thank you very much, Robbie. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor. The, the, the guest list you have is extraordinary. So just the, the opportunity to come on and talk shop, I really appreciate it. Um, I respect what you do a lot, so thank you. Thanks. Um, where you can get a hold of me, Twitter, Instagram, both uh, dmcconnell29. Um, certainly can email me as well. Uh, always always happy to talk shop, answer questions. Again, that's dmcconnell29 at gmail. So What's all basically 29? the same. Uh, my favorite, uh, my favorite goaltender. I was a goalie growing up. My favorite goaltender was Felix Botvin, and he wore twenty nine. So I thought, I, 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 I thought it was your. You were a goaltender, right? Yeah, I, uh, I always wore number one, but only because the teams I played for didn't have twenty nine. So yeah. that was my option. I actually thought it was because you wore twenty nine, but now I, know. I knew, I knew something. Was, I had a feeling it was something to do with hockey, and there were twenty nine. But I thought it was either you yep. wore that as a goaltender, but that's great. Yeah. Devin, thanks for being this. I'm gonna wrap up here, and real quick, I'll say goodbye to our friends. So guys, what an absolute whopper podcast with Devin McConnell. That is the shit I love to talk about. Uh, really got into the nitty gritty there in terms of physical preparation, sports science, and uh, you know, Devin had great, great insights into the questions I have to ask and uh, put up with my ramblings too and, and my very bad Verkashansky uh, expression, uh, or, sorry, impressions there as, as we went on. But uh, so, Devin, really appreciate that. Uh, so, guys, for everyone listening, if you can uh, share this out on all your social media outlets and you know, do the little reviews as well, let it go on the iTunes, that'd be great. But for now, for everyone that is listening, take care, be well. I'll talk to everyone soon again and stay strong. Mm-hmm.